0: Dr. Ryan Stanton here with ASEP Frontline here on day three of ASEP 16. Um, Here in the Exhibition Hall, so some good natural sound behind us. And we have our first, I think, for uh, ASEP Frontline repeat speaker, and there's a good reason for that. I'm Dr. Mike Winters, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine and Medicine and Co-Director of the Combined EMIM Critical Care Program at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. Medical Director for Adult Emergency Medicine, University of Maryland Medical Center in Baltimore, Maryland, and uh, ASAP, Honorable Mention, Outstanding Speaker of the Year for 2014 and 15. We had a fantastic interview in Boston uh, back in 2015, so we wanted to bring you back. And this year, you even got a little bit something new, a book on critical care that's That We're getting some pre-orders here, second edition of Emergency Department Resuscitation of the Critically Ill, and we actually just wrapped up a podcast here on critical care medicine and uh, a book that you're about to have uh, coming out very soon.
1: Yeah, well, thanks, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be here at at ASEP and be back on ASEP Frontline. Uh, As you said, the second edition of Emergency Department Resuscitation of the Critically Ill should be done and out in print uh, in a matter of months, and so it's been exciting Um, It's been a little bit easier than the first edition. Certainly that was a monumental effort, a Herculean effort putting the textbook together. Uh, But I have to give credit to all of the authors. Outstanding job and submitting things on time really makes my job as an editor pretty easy. So new content in the second edition coming up, some things on ECMO, a refresh and update of a lot of chapters based upon current literature. So we're excited to get this out in terms of print in the ASAP bookstore.
0: Fantastic. So give us an idea. You mentioned some of the things that are new inside the uh, book this time. Give some ideas of some of the things that you're focusing on from a critical care standpoint.
1: Well, from the textbook standpoint, we we definitely have to have those basic things that every emergency physician encounters in managing critically ill patients. So the crashing or difficult airway, Mm -hmm. once you put somebody on the ventilator and they crash on the ventilator, what are the steps that you need to take in order to Work through and diagnose what's causing that patient, the ventilated patient, to crash. We've got updates on sepsis. We've thrown in some neurocritical care with subarachnoid hemorrhage. We've got a chapter by Zach Shiner on ECMO, along with John Greenwood, some pulmonary hypertension. Now, that's a patient population that we're starting to see more and more, and absolutely can be very critically ill when they come in uh, into the ED for, with acute on top of chronic RV failure. So we've added some content on the patient, the crashing patient with pulmonary hypertension. We've added a few other things uh, in there as well, Some the crashing obese patient. So a lot of specific patient populations that we're starting to see more and more and more uh, into the general content of the textbook. So those are a few things, neurocritical care, some OB, the crashing L&D patient, mm-hmm. updates on neonatal and pediatric resuscitation, all in, you know, all in the textbook, so... Very, very exciting. Is this
0: uh, this sounds like it's going to be, is it like two million pages? No, I mean, you not at a lot all. It's actually a significant very, information a very there.
1: readable. No, It's going to be no bigger than the first edition, which, um, I don't know, maybe half an inch, three quarters an inch thick. It's not that thick at all. And what we really like about the textbook is that within each chapter, there's flow diagrams. Mm-hmm. So a very easy reference. It's something that you can put in the ED and then during the time that you're managing these patients, just quickly open to that chapter, follow a nice simple algorithm or flow sheet. And then certainly the the content of each chapter goes into a little bit more granular or more detail, but something that's easily an easy reference. And I'm excited to know or see how ASAP also moves through the online version as well. The project,
0: to me, I mean, we, we just talked about it a little bit ago um, that you know, we have a lot of guidelines out there, but I love to hear that the book is focusing on the fact that not everybody fits in one category. You know, the, the challenges you're going to face, whether it's the obese patient, whether it's the uh, other critically comorbid conditions patient, yeah. it's very nice to have some of that. And, and you know, it. I mean, you're, it sounds like you're. At, uh, I mean, we at a at an academic center, clearly a tertiary care center. But I think it sounds like to me, this book would be a fantastic addition for that community doctor Mm -hmm. who may be the critical care specialist for that hospital, for that time that the patient shows up before you transfer them to a referral center. I mean, it sounds like a good resource for those folks to um, have something to turn to, an expert to turn to when they have that patient sitting in front of them in a small, uh, say,
1: rural eastern Kentucky. You know, that is exactly who we targeted the textbook towards. We understand, and, and you and I and my colleagues, we're at facilities where we have almost every resource available 24-7, mm-hmm. and that's really not the majority of our emergency medicine colleagues who are out there in settings or departments with really limited resources. And so certainly, while we do have the ECMO chapter, almost all of the other chapters are designed for that community physician. What are the critical things that you need to know in order to save lives? know when these patients come in and they're sick and you're on your own well even if you don't
0: have the resource you know the use the ECMO example um, to me also uh, mechanical thrombectomy or invasive Mm -hmm. stroke care if you even if you don't have it you need to know that it exists and where to apply it so you can get that patient to that resource Mm -hmm. if they qualify for it so just because you don't have something doesn't mean you get to tear that chapter out and use it for kindling. It mm-hmm. means you That's need right. to be aware of it and know <laughs> that, have those relationships of where that patient's going to go when they show up. You know, you can call that um, intensivist or whoever it may be and say, I've got this patient here. They may be a candidate uh, for ECMO or they may be can, a candidate for mm-hmm. this or that type of procedure. Can I get them to you? Yep, Because I, I, so much... Now critical care is moving into the emergency realm more and more than it ever has before. And mm-hmm. we've always been the initial evaluators, stabilizers, resuscitators, but I think a lot more, not only from a regulation standpoint, but a qualification standpoint. Our folks are, are more and more qualified to take care of these patients. Mm-hmm. We are critical care specialists, um, even if it's not necessarily with another board certification. And so I think a lot of that is moving to the emergency department and so uh, you know having a resource like this available um, I, I think can be a, a huge benefit to our physicians out there no matter what type of facility and as you mentioned I, I think we heard about it at council that about ninety percent of our docs are community docs yeah. and so you know so much of larger conferences are about um, are about academics mm-hmm. and referred to from academics so if we can get resources that can apply to the majority of the doctors, and the majority of the patients will come in contact Mm -hmm. with, I think that really is a nice uh, nice tool for our physicians. I
1: 100% agree.
0: Let's get to critical care. What do you feel are the challenges that us as emergency physicians are going to face in the next, well, near future, five to 10 years? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, um, of course, the opioids and associated overdoses and complications, endocarditis, things like that, um, aging population. So, of course, cardiopulmonary-related issues, stroke-related issues. What are our big challenges that we're going to see that we need to kind of keep our ear to the rail about?
1: You know, I've been asked this question a few times here at Scientific Assembly, and I taking a step back and really going even out of the critical care realm. Uh, one of my hats, as you read, was the medical director of R E D, ED. And I, I can say with certainty that we are encountering a lot of problems and challenges that we never did before. Mm-hmm. Whereas a patient comes in, we're really focused and dialed down on the medical care. But as healthcare continues to evolve and change and the focus on resource utilization, cost utilization, I can tell you that We've now got case managers in our ED, 24 7 social workers. We have transitional care coordinators because there's a huge movement to really prevent people from coming into the hospital. And so with that overall focus, it, it's resulted in even continued backup in the emergency department as we're trying to get patients not either simply discharged or admitted, but now have perhaps to skilled nursing facilities. Mm-hmm or actually transition to home hospice. you know Things that we've never had to do before um, and, and being that front door once again, these are some of the challenges that I certainly see for the next five years. I think from a clinical standpoint, as diseases evolve and as we continue to get smarter and learn more evidence about post-resuscitation care or even in intra-arrest care with eCPR, or things like we talked about, I mentioned with pulmonary hypertension, uh, more and more mechanical devices, more and more improvements on therapy, certainly keeping us at the front line of all of that while also in the background, navigating where a patient's next step, step, step is really in their home health care. Um, it, it, I, I see that as one of the immediate challenges on the horizon.
0: Well, we mentioned that emergency medicine is the front door of medicine. Uh, Doctor Kaplan likes to say that we're the front porch of mm-hmm. the medical home. But honestly, if you think about it, we're more and more becoming the front door, the foyer, the family room, yeah. and I mean, it's, there's a whole lot that's going in there. And the challenge is being it's becoming very diverse because it's not just physicians, nurses, and techs, and then you know the registration in there. You're right; we have pharmacy down down there, social work that's down there. I mean. So much that's being required is not necessarily required, but how much we are able to do from there in effectively getting patients when and where they need to be. I mean, I think one of the big challenges is going to be the pressure from outside that says, well, the emergency department, we need to figure out how to get people out of there and mm-hmm. lower the cost. Right. You know, that, but honestly, the value that we're providing and the things that we can provide, especially if given the proper tools, is expanding exponentially. Mm-hmm. You know, we came in here thinking that all I have to do is evaluate a patient, get a decent diagnosis, get them stabilized, and then dispositioned to wherever they need to be. Yeah. And it's not that anymore. I mean, we're not... Absolutely we're not. In, we're, we're now full service. We're one of the full service yes. departments of the hospital. Oh, yeah. And the only one that runs 365, 24-7 in any hospital around the country. You
1: know, we can walk out of a room and say, you know what, I know this patient isn't going home, but then the question becomes, well... Do they meet observation criteria? Mm -hmm. Or do they meet admission criteria? And if they meet observation criteria, is there a better way that we can avoid bringing that patient in under observation to an inpatient team? Can we transition them to an outpatient clinic, a higher level acuity clinic? Um, Can we get them home with home health care? Questions that quite honestly, a decade, 15 years ago, I was never asking myself when I was in training, but now are pertinent questions
0: i think it's I, absolutely I, I believe that emergency medicine you know as as other folks point at how do we decrease vol, you know volume and visits to the emergency room, I think we especially here realize that it 's the perfect place
1: mm-hmm.
0: i mean if we have every if we have all the tools we need, the home hospice, the uh, skilled nursing the observation the inpatient the critical care, the clinics. Mm-hmm you know I think as we transition into that the future of medicine Mm -hmm. you see the emergency department as that hub as the place to kind of get people distributed effectively where they need to be and I think the cost savings will come from that. an example being our hospital has put in an AFib clinic and a CHF clinic Mm -hmm. so those patients new onset AFib or that patient that comes in with slightly but stable decompensated heart Mm -hmm. failure Get a little bit of fluid off of them, get the rate controlled, send them to the clinic. Mm-hmm. Saves them admi- an admission. Thousands of dollars returning mm-hmm. uh, that, that are not spent in healthcare by being able to properly distribute people. And I think that's a huge challenge facing a lot of hospitals, though. Um, at one I've worked, an academic center I worked at before, the, we couldn't discharge a lot of patients because the discharge plans yeah. weren't in place. Yes. I couldn't get them effectively followed up for loop. a stress test yes. or a
1: pediatrician or primary care. It's amazing how all of a sudden with healthcare reform, those opportunities are quickly materializing. So those quick outpatient clinic visits that we can now set up in 24 to 48 hours um, were never there before and there was never much interest, quite honestly, Mm. in getting them. But now that there is significant focus uh, and also resource allocation to that, uh, they're happening with much more frequency. Certainly, uh, I have the same experience where all of a sudden now we, we have almost a plethora of outpatient clinics that our ED clerks can directly schedule into before a patient leaves the ED. We have, we have access to their scheduling. And I think with respect to even CHF, uh, that's probably monetarily driven because we know mm-hmm. CHF is one of those top readmitting, 30-day readmission diagnosis, so I'm, I'm certain that there's a lot of focus on that. Um, not only, obviously, for improved health care, but I'm sure Resource and cost utilization. Money
0: drives everything. You know that. I mean, for for me in uh, Central Kentucky, the two the two predominant readmission diagnoses are COPD and CHF. CHF. Yep. So definitely, definitely chronic pulmonary diseases. So things things we're not going to fix. We just need to maximize their baseline. Mm -hmm. Whatever they can achieve is where we need to get them. But you know, compliance is such a such a bear of an issue.
1: So a long-winded discussion, but that's, you know, kind of been my response to where are we challenged in the next 5 years and I see it's probably going to take a little bit longer than 5 years, but I see us struggling with those challenges and overcoming them in the immediate future.
0: The question I I haven't asked and it's probably a little bit shifting a little bit, but I you know, I feel like you're you're most qualified person in the, to to answer this. In terms of inpatient with you know internal medicine, critical care, emergency medicine, fewer of our primary docs are actually admitting their own patients into the hospital. Mm-hmm. And so when the patients come in, they're being seen and taken care of by hospitalists, you know intensivists, emergency docs. So basically everybody in-house that probably doesn't have a close knowledge mm-hmm. um, of the patient. You know, compared to in the, in the old days when your primary care doctor would admit you, they knew everything about yeah. you already, there was no getting up to speed. How do we bridge that gap in medicine as we shift, as we shift that paradigm of separating the primary care and inpatient system, mm-hmm.
1: which has been taking place about the last decade, decade and a half? I can speak to what we've struggled with at, at University of Maryland. And what I can say, I'll be honest, that you know, I, I think that our um, EMR, has helped somewhat mm-hmm. to bridge our personal gap in that yes, we have our hospitalist services, we have several of them. Um, similarly, we, we don't have any of a, even though we have our inpatient attending, some of them do attend in the clinic with residents. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little different from some of the community settings as you mentioned where a PMD would come in round as a portion of their day, then they'd go spend the rest of the day in the office. And I would say that the communication certainly needs to be there in closing the loop. And through our EMR, we recently deployed a new one in November at University of Maryland throughout a lot of our system hospitals. So not only at the medical center, but uh, across the system. And it's greatly improved our ability to coordinate care, see what was happening as an outpatient, see what was happening if patients came into one of our other facilities we really have much more robust information and it, it, I'll be honest it has allowed us to provide a little bit better care um, since moving over to an improved EMR system.
0: You have those folks come in now and they say their doc referred them in and you know you try to get a history and like oh it's in the record yeah well which which record oh at that other hospital over there yeah. so you know the emrs i think down the road have a great solution and maybe integrating all of these charts and the information But right now we're still lacking in the hospital as i work for now you know three years ago we had 10 or 15 docs that were admitting their own folks now we've got one mm-hmm. that admits his own uh, patients and that's only during weekday hours Otherwise, the hospital is serviced. So I think there's that gap of trying to catch up to especially mm-hmm. now seeing more and more chronic, and, uh, chronic illness mm-hmm. with an aging population, whether it's diabetes or hypertension, heart disease, history of strokes, thromboembolic disease, of whatever nature it is. And I think that's a, a challenge that's going to face us in the future, trying mm-hmm. to get up to speed on patients, especially when they come in in critical care and aren't able to yeah. uh, effectively communicate.
1: communicate. Yeah, absolutely. Now. I have, I'm at a little bit of an advantage, I would say, Maryland-wise, um, and I don't know if it's there in other states, but there is a health information exchange, um, sort of a 40,000-foot view in terms of Maryland, that almost all of the hospitals in the state of Maryland feed information into this exchange, mm-hmm. and so even if the patient comes in to the University of Maryland and they're not really within the system and haven't been anywhere, I can log into this health information exchange and I can see where they've been at other hospitals. I can pull up discharge summaries, consults, labs, radiology. So um, it, that has greatly assisted our care. And, and I don't think a lot of other states have that, Not many. Um, but, but that has improved my specific I know Washington State
0: living. has a very strong one. Clearly Maryland now does too. Kentucky has a health information exchange, but nobody uses it. In fact, to the point that i don 't even believe they they applied it to our current um, to our current EMr uh, at my hospital, and I think that is critical, moving down you know it's we have five hospitals in Lexington all within a couple of miles of each other, mm-hmm. and people will go around yeah, yeah. based on convenience e d wait times how it's looking, where they are, convenience, things yep. like that, assuming that all of us hospitals talk to each other yeah. I mean, we don't have the same name, and in many ways, we don't necessarily get along very well, I mean, from an administrative standpoint. So, um, you know, I think that information is key for us, not only to make sure we accurately treat people, but also figuring out ways to be good stewards of that health care dollar. I hope that other states will adopt that uh, that Maryland-Washington approach. Yeah,
1: it's been very helpful. Um, And and I, I think if you talk to any of the practitioners in Maryland who utilize this system, they'll definitely give it a thumbs up in terms of improving our access to what's going on with patients around the state.
0: Give us an idea. When when will the uh, book be available and where can folks uh, get access to it?
1: So it's going to be through the ASEP bookstore. And I would say probably in the next three to four months, the final page proofs I'm just reviewing now. Um, so that should be done pretty soon after scientific assembly. So I Probably by the time that everyone listens to this podcast, the second edition will be out, and um, like I said, it's really looking forward to having that in bookstores, and it's been really a pleasure once again here at Scientific Assembly. I've had the opportunity to do five critical care talks. Um, I did yesterday a delayed sequence intubation, or more so a pre-oxygenation talk, critical care literature updates. Uh, This morning, I did the crashing obese patient. Mm-hmm. Um, about In a few minutes, I'm going to go hang out with Peter W. and Eric Katz and talk about some ASEP Connect stuff. And then I end my scientific assembly here with the care, care of the ICU border uh, in the ED. So.
0: so those will all be available on uh, virtual ASEP if you didn't make it to the talks here at ASEP 16. And uh, sounds like topics that are in the book as, as well in yep. terms of uh, yeah. uh, fantastic. A lot of changes in those. I mean, the airway, the... Um, airway related issues have changed significantly yeah. now. The recommendations of the um, nasal cannula with the mask with yeah. the oh, yeah. uh, prep. I mean, and it's it's really amazing what we can do. And the fact that we haven't realized it earlier is well honestly that's the way medicine is.
1: Well, you know, someone also asked me after one of the talks yesterday that people who come to Scientific Assembly, it's you know that's it's seven, eight, maybe nine thousand folks but the college is so much bigger and so how do you disseminate that knowledge and it's really through people like yourself leading the way in terms of podcasting, social media, really getting knowledge translation out there much sooner than we know that typical 12, 15 years before something new gets implemented into standard practice. So kudos to you for for all of your efforts here and bringing us all up to speed in terms of the latest and greatest.
0: Well, this is just uh, scratching the surface. In 20 minutes, we can just barely kind of get under the surface and understand that there's an issue, and maybe that will inspire you as a listener um, to um, look deeper, to get the information understanding that medicine is changing faster now than it ever has before if you are practicing your airway based on what you did 10 years ago or or your sepsis based on 10 years ago, you are way behind. And so you need to make sure more now than ever that you're constantly learning, you're constantly researching, you're constantly updating your practice because medicine is evolving with modern technology at, at paces faster than ever before. And I think there's fantastic podcasts out there for mm-hmm. for information. I mean, I've with uh, through the Smack Conference, connecting with some of those folks, and you know, there's always some great ones out there. Anyway, a lot of uh, foam ed that's available. Yeah, you know, absolutely. get those, pick you a few, listen to them. I have several that uh, are my uh, favorites. I love M Crit, I love uh, S Jim. I mean, there are. I love the Annals uh, mm-hmm. podcast. They're coming in here in just a little bit and taping their podcast so you're
1: going to tape Rory Spiegel
0: well I'm, I'm stepping back they're in here they're going to do their okay. thing and, and so uh, I'll be looking forward to listening to that when it comes out next month
1: we are uh, we're so happy to have EM nerd at University of Maryland so shout you gotta, out to Rory you,
0: you got to collect every nerd you can it's once you get older, being nerd is uh, very beneficial. Yeah. It may not help you in high school, and middle school, but yeah. once you get to this point, being the nerd is okay. Yeah. So, how, how can people get in touch with you if they have any uh, questions, whether via social media or email?
1: Yep. So, social media wise, we are at Crit Care Guys, and that's pretty much the Twitter link that we have for our critical care podcast. So, I do, I've done one the last several years with Peter W. and Rob Rodriguez, and now we've recently, in the past year, added John Greenwood to our podcast. It's entitled Critical Care Perspectives in Emergency Medicine. And I also have my U- University of Maryland email that if you simply go to UMEM, so University of Maryland Emergency Medicine, U-M-E-M, you can send, shoot me an email through our, our faculty website. I'm happy. I, I'm always on email, always responding, so lots of ways to get in touch with me. So either through Twitter or email access, that's probably the best.
0: All right, at Crit Care Guys and Critical Care Perspectives in Emergency Medicine, you're going to definitely have one more uh, subscriber here very shortly uh, with me, uh, because if uh, your podcast is any like anything like our interactions, I'm going to uh, it's going to be one of my
1: go-tos for sure. Well, thanks. It's always a pleasure, Ryan, chatting with you. and Thanks so much for another opportunity at Scientific Assembly.
0: And well, I assume we're going to see you in Washington D.C. end of October next year, and.
1: Well, I suppose that'll be up to the members of the education committee.
0: Oh, so, uh, if not, we'll we're, we're going to need you to be there anyways. Yeah, I, I never take anything Maryland for, is the
1: closest we've ever been. I never take anything for granted. So if given Absolutely. the opportunity, I, I would certainly be very happy and privileged to take it.
0: All right, and as for us, you can uh, check us out on Facebook at ASEP Frontline. Like the page, and it'll keep you up to date on our um, weekly releases with uh, great content like Dr. Mike Winters right here. You can also check us out on Twitter at EverydayMed and email me, youreverydaymedicine at gmail.com, youreverydaymedicine at gmail.com. And until next time, I'm Dr. Ryan Stanton, and this has been some ASAP Frontline.